At this time, we're going to go ahead and dismiss our kids. And so uh, the kids will go ahead and go to the Connection Center. Uh, you see Patty waving her hands. Uh, go ahead and uh, dismiss them right there. My name is Brian. I get to serve as the associate pastor here. And it is my joy uh, to be able to preach today on this two-week series that we are on the second part today called um, Lost. Um, God cares for the lost. And so we're in the second half of Luke chapter 15. And like Sean said, today we're approaching a text that is called the prodigal son, or some people might call it the lost son. But before we get there, I want to say something. There are many men that were given everything that the world could offer them, yet they lost everything in an instant. One example is a man that was rich. He was considered untouchable in the United States. Yet within a moment, the government took him down, imprisoned him, and left him without anything. Who was that man? His name was Al Capone. He was not a very good man. Uh, He did a lot of evil things. There's another example of someone who had all that the world could offer him, but he was very unwise with his money. He was making about $40 million in just one year. He bought cars, houses, and artifacts, yet he owed millions and millions of dollars to the IRS. According to Business Insider, from 1996 to 2011, he spent $150 million, which was nearly all of the money he had made um, from acting. Who is this man? Uh, You might not have seen him in a movie recently uh, or in a while. Uh, His name is Nicolas Cage. Uh, he's pretty much broke now, and he owes the IRS a ton of money. And so it's, it's crazy to think about someone who has millions and millions of dollars, who has everything that the world can offer them, and in a moment's instant, they lose everything that they had, everything that they worked hard for, and everything that they put their uh, purpose and life meaning into. And so there are some celebrities, some people who are Uh, really wise with their money, and they invest it into accounts that they're able to grow it well, and and they're able to save their money over a lifetime. Yet there's other people who spend their entire life fortune in an instant. Today in Luke 15, verse 11, we will see that even the Bible, even in the Bible, there was a man who wasted and blew an entire fortune within just a couple years. A man that left his home to party and live his best life. And he blew it, um, just parting away. So right now, let's, let's go to God in prayer. Dear Lord, I just pray that you help us to really hear from your word, Lord. Help it to, to pierce our hearts today, God, to transform our minds and to just change us, God. I pray that we really uh, listen in, uh, lean in, and want to learn from your word today, God. And that we can go away from this message changed, God. We thank you and we praise you. Amen. Okay, so the context of this scripture, like I said, we're in Luke 15. Uh, last week we did verses 1 through 10. We're in the second half of this chapter. Um, the last, basically, we're going from verses 11 through 32. And this section of scripture is called the Jesus Travel Narrative. Jesus' travel narrative. Why would it be called that? Well, he was on his way. He was traveling uh, from Galilee, and he was on his way to Jerusalem. 
Now, if you know Galilee, I've actually been there. I've been to the Sea of Galilee in Israel back in about 2018, 2019. It is gorgeous. Um, It was such a beautiful sight to see how beautiful the water looked. Um, We actually got to go into a boat. Um, Of course, I didn't step into the water. I didn't try to do anything like that. I just, I stood in the boat, (laughs) and it was just amazing. Uh, We got to worship God together and and hear uh, just songs and and praise Him and and think about all the different things Jesus had done during His ministry. And so it was in Galilee that He did a lot of His ministry, but it was on this Jesus travel narrative, this Jesus narrative, where he was basically walking and traveling all the way to Jerusalem, that we get most of our stories. We get most of our parables. We get most of our teaching from Jesus. And so this is a really important section of Scripture. Also, it's important to note that Jerusalem was actually the place where prophets would go. They would preach the Word of God, and they would also often be killed for what they preached. We see that happen in uh, the period of time between 700, uh, about 780 AD all the way through 586 BC, or BC, sorry, um, all the way during the time of the fall of Jerusalem. We see that uh, Jeremiah and other prophets would be killed in Jerusalem, and it was just a really a symbolization of what Jesus was going to do for us as he's traveling to Jerusalem. And so that's important to note. So what's happening now? Well, Jesus has just shared two parables with the Pharisees. They were questioning him as to why he would sit around tax collectors. If you were here last week, that's what we talked about. And today we're in the final response that Jesus gives to the Pharisees as to why he would allow himself to be around those people the people that were considered sinners and people that would be rejected by many. So let's open up to Luke chapter 15 together, starting in verse 11. Once again, for some people, you may know this as the prodigal son. Uh, For others, it's known as the lost son. Jesus mentioned two stories of valuable things that that had been lost. He had mentioned what was the first one the sheep. The second one was the lost coin. Today, we're learning about the lost son. And even though things have been lost, how much great joy can be found. Starting in verse one, uh, 11. And he said, there was a man who had two sons, and the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of property that is coming to me. And he divided his property between them. Not many days later, the younger son gathered all he had, and he took a journey into a far country. And there, in that country, he squandered his property in reckless living. So first, the first thing I notice is that in this story, there is a conflict. The first conflict I notice is that there are two brothers. When there's two brothers, that typically means there's two voices, And when there's two voices, that means there's two different opinions, right? And in this case, two different ways of living. It's not always true that there's always conflict between brothers, but there typically is. 
I mean, we're all sinners, and so what does that mean? We're all people, we all have opinions, we all have conflict at times, or disagreements. And so that's the minor conflict of what's happening. But I really want you to lean in onto the major conflict of what's happening. As we see in this passage that the younger son, he just got his inheritance. Basically all of the money that his dad had saved up for him. And what did he do? He blew it, he lived worldly, and recklessly. Uh, the, the Bible in the ESV version, it says he lived completely recklessly, meaning he spent every cent. He took everything that his father had spent time earning and working for, and within a moment's instant, he made all of the things, all of the hard work that his father had done, all of the treasure his father had saved up for him, he made it completely worthless, pointless, meaningless. So we see that a great, great supply of this wealth, all this money, was gone within one moment. This reminds me of someone that I've seen who's asked for help time and time again. Uh, I've seen it in my life where, where people have asked for help, and in a sense, someone has bailed them out of their situation. But instead of taking the ball and running with it, they continue to go in the same cycle and the same pattern and do the same things over and over again. And so I've seen uh, people where uh, someone gives them a, a good chunk of money and basically they're trying to help them get off their feet and all of a sudden that money's gone. It's blown. It's been uh, used in ways that were unwise. Maybe it was drank or used for gambling or, or other things. But I, I've seen that happen. And so my question is, are we being wise with what God has given us? Are we being a good steward of the things that God has given us? Because God has given us so many beautiful things, so many blessings, um, and we're called to have responsibility. We're called to live in a life of wisdom. We're actually going through the book of Ecclesiastes in, um, in our college group, in our young adult group, and it's talking about the meaning of life, how wisdom and God helps us to live the best life possible. Um, and so my question is, are we squandering the things that God has given us? Have we misused our inheritance? Or even, have we misused our title as a Christian? These are questions we should ask ourselves. Um, are we really a Christian? Are we really following the Lord? Or in what ways can God change our hearts and change our lives uh, to be more like him? And so another question I might ask is, are we living as a person of the world but still holding to the name Christian? And so that's, that's, that's an important question for us all to ask. And I ask myself that all the time because I have to check myself. I have to check my heart. I have to check what I'm thinking, um, the decisions I make. Am I using wisdom or am I just using emotions? Am I just doing the, the thing I think is right, or am I actually heeding to God's word? And so those are some questions um, I would just ask you. My first point for today, point number one, is that God has blessed us. God has blessed us with an inheritance. God has blessed his children with an inheritance. Uh, we, saw that in, we see that in Luke 15, 11 through 13, and Luke 15, 14 through 18. So if we go in verse 14, it says, And when he, who's he? 
the son, yeah, when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in the country, and he began to be in need. So he went, and what did he do? He hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country, who sent him into the field to feed pigs. And he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate, and no one gave him anything. But when he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread? But I, I perish here with hunger. I'm starving. And yet all of, all of my father's servants, they're living luxuriously. They're having plenty of food, and I'm here eating basically dog food. It's like if you ate dog food today. It's pretty gross. I haven't tried it, but I'm sure, I assume it's pretty gross. <laughs> um, so he says, I will rise and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. At this moment, he came to a reality in his life. He came to the reality that he had just lived at this all-time high, and all of a sudden, he was at the lowest point of his life. He was literally eating dog food or pig food. It was terrible. And going back to his father would be so much greater than all of the suffering that he went through um, and had been experiencing as living in the world. It's interesting to note that when it comes to suffering, suffering does something special. Suffering draws us near to God. It draws us back to God. Sometimes hitting rock bottom helps us realize that we're not in control, but instead that we have a heavenly Father who is ready to receive us and help us in even our greatest times of need. In our darkest moments, God still searches for us. He still pursues us. And, of course, he still desires us. Tim Keller says it like this, you don't really know Jesus is all you need until Jesus is all you have. I'm going to say that again. You don't really know Jesus is all you need until Jesus is all you have. And the prodigal son had nothing. He had pig food to eat from. He wanted to go back to his father. He wanted to go back to that relationship. He wanted to see him again. And so it's in this pit of despair that the younger son who experienced this suffering, that he remembers that he still has a father that cares and loves him. In this same way, we have a heavenly father who still cares and loves for us, loves us. He loves us so greatly that point number two, God has adopted us as his children. God has adopted us as his children. And we'll see that in verse 19, 19 through 21, as it says, I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. So he's practicing what he's going to say to his dad. And he says this, And he arose and came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him. His father saw him. He was looking out into the distance. He still had hope that his son was going to come back. 
And while he saw him a long way off, he didn't just see him. He didn't just look at him. He looked at him with compassion. And I, I have to say, a lot of times we don't look at people with compassion. You know, a lot of times we think people are hopeless. They, they have no chance of coming back to God. And we forget to still have hope that Christ will one day bring them bring them into a personal relationship with him. And so his father saw him, he felt compassion, and what did he do next? He didn't just leave him there and say, you're coming to me. You know, you have to, you have to come to me. You have to walk to me. You have to stand right there and say, I'm sorry. He does not do that. What does he do? He runs to him. He goes to him, and he embraces him. He hugs him. He still cares for him. Even though his son treated him poorly, even though his son blew all of the money that he worked for, God, or his father, still had compassion for him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Even though the father's son left, as soon as he saw him, he felt this compassion and loved him. He still cared for him and took him in as his son, despite all the shameful things his son had done. The way his son had acted unwise with his life, with his finances, yet the father still had a heart full of compassion, mercy, and love for his son. This really reminds me of a story in the Old Testament. The story is of a prophet who was called by God and commanded to marry a prostitute. He married her, and she would oftentimes cheat on him. She would go astray, committing adultery in their relationship, infidelity. However, instead, this prophet, instead of him doing what he, we would imagine he would do, what, get angry, upset, bitter, he doesn't do that. He steps in and finds that she has sold herself to a man, and Hosea, this is Hosea, he shows compassion towards her. Even though she has messed up in her life so many times, her name's Gomer, Even though she's messed up so many times in her life and acted unwisely, Hosea steps in, buys her back, redeems her, and shows her what true love is and what true love does. It's this type of love that is an example of what the Father's love is for us. Even though we walk away, we focus on something else, we worship something else, God still wants us, and he's still here to redeem us, to save us. His whole goal is to seek and save those who are lost. If we look at the whole theme of Luke, this whole book, I know I've only had two weeks to go through this chapter, but if we looked at this whole book of Luke, this whole gospel, 
we would see the whole point of this is to seek and save the lost. Who are the lost? It's us when we wander, when we've wandered and not found a relationship with God. It's people that are our neighbors. People that sometimes, okay, I love missionaries. I, I'm so grateful for missionaries because they seek and save the lost too. But we also have local missionaries. It's called us, the church. And we have a responsibility to go out and share the gospel, to share what God has done in our lives. And to, to realize that he cares so much for the lost people. So point number, number three, and we'll, we'll find this as we read the next text, is that God clothes his children with majesty when we choose to live for him. God clothes his children with majesty when we choose to live for him. And it says this in Luke 15, 22 through 24. But the father said to his servants, bring quickly the best robe and put it on him and put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet and bring the fattened calf and kill it and let us eat and celebrate. For this, my son was dead. And what does it say? And he is alive again. He was lost and he is found. And they began to celebrate. The first thing he puts on his son is a robe. He clothes him in majesty, saying, you are part of my family once again. You are still part of our royal family. But I want you to really focus in on this. What does he do next? He puts a ring on his hand. He puts a ring on his hand for a reason. A ring... If you don't know, it symbolizes something very, very powerful and important. It's called a covenant. A ring symbolizes a covenant relationship with someone. And in Genesis 12, 1 through 3, we see that God establishes a covenant with Abraham. Uh, at that time, he's called Abram. Later on, he names him Abraham, and through Abraham's blood, through his descendants we get this promise of fulfillment through Jesus. We see that God promises to Abraham that he will bless him and make his name great, and that he will make him a father of many nations. Yet, he also ends it with this in Genesis 12:3, where he says, I will bless you, and you will be a blessing to all the nations. I will bless you and you will be a blessing to all the nations. And that blessing to all peoples, all nations, is through Jesus, through his sacrifice, and through him giving us the ability to have a personal relationship with him. And so we're going back to the word covenant. Covenant is a solemn agreement between two or more parties made binding by some sort of oath. Um, it's mutually agreed upon, uh, by both parties, and a covenant in the Bible um, would often uh, deal with relationships such as uh, pledges between private, pe private uh, persons like in roof, uh, agreements or compacts between the king and other people, uh, treaties or alliances between kings and nations, uh, political states, 
promissory oaths, uh, proclaiming official policies, and covenants between Yahweh and human beings. That's the most important covenant uh, that we see throughout the Bible. And so a covenant was a promise of an ongoing relationship with someone. One example of a covenant today is marriage. Marriage. In the covenant of marriage, God created, he created it, and it can first be seen in Genesis, in Genesis chapter 2. It is establishing a relationship between one man and one woman. It symbolizes the gospel. Tim Keller puts it like this in his book, The Meaning of Marriage. To be loved but not known is comforting but superficial. To be known and not loved is our greatest fear. But to be fully known and truly loved is, well, a lot like being loved by God. It is what we need more than anything. It liberates us from pretenses, humbles us out of our self-righteousness, and fortifies us for any difficulty that life can throw at us. That's from Timothy Keller. And I, I just want to say it like this. Marriage sanctifies us. It exposes in us uh, the things that are wrong, and it helps us to point us to Jesus. That's what marriage is meant for. We are also, um, through marriage, able to find help and find joy in it by finding Christ. If we find Christ first and allow our, our marriage to be Christ-centered, that's where we truly find joy, and that's where we truly find um, a lot of solutions to arguments. We'll just say that. <laughs> and today, I, I don't even have this in my notes. I just want to say this. Today, uh, a lot of people don't value marriage. A lot of people think that marriage is bad, it has a negative concept. In Timothy Keller's book, he says that a lot of people in the world think that, you know, in, back in the, like, 50s, People hated marriage, and it was just like an obligation. Well, that's not true. Marriage is one of the most beautiful things, as long as you keep Christ first. That's the most important part. It's difficult. It's not easy. But it's very rewarding. And if you find your hope in Christ, if you find your help in His Word, He can help you to solve a lot of those arguments, a lot of those things that you're going through. Point number four, God celebrates when his lost children are found. God celebrates when his lost children are found. We're going to go in verse 25. Now his older son was in the field, and as he came and drew near to his house, he heard music and dancing, and he called one of his servants and asked what these things meant. And he said to him, your brother has come back. And your father has killed the fattened calf because he has received him back safe and sound. But he was angry and he refused to go in. His father came out and treated him. But he answered his father, Look, these many years I have served you and I never disobeyed your command. Yet, you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came, he doesn't even say, my brother. He says, this son of yours this son of yours came he is who has devoured your property with prostitutes. You killed the fattened calf for him. And he said to him, son, 
You are, always, you are always with me, and all that is mine is yours. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad, for your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and found. We see that this brother is super jealous. He's upset because of this celebration that the father has for his son. But the whole point is, this man is so focused on what he wants and what he gets, he's not even focused on his brother or loving his brother or caring for his brother, who was actually probably on the lowest point of life. He didn't care for him. He just cared about how much he got celebrated. And so, I'll just share with you, the, the, the son that was jealous and angry, in the Old Testament, that's an example of who the Pharisees were. That is an example of the Pharisees. Because the Pharisees didn't want us. He didn't want Gentiles. Jesus died to seek and save the lost, but of all nations. That's why I go back to Genesis 12. It wasn't just for Israel or just for those uh, people who uh, were in the Old Testament following God like the Pharisees. And it wasn't for that. It was to establish a relationship with people of all backgrounds and all types, whoever would come and live for the Lord, who would live in obedience to God. And so, it's really sad, actually. I used to always be on the side of the Pharisee, right? Because it's like, well, come on, where's my reward? I've been here all these years following you, and I'm not being celebrated. But how jealous and how self-absorbed can you be to not care for your, your brother who's perishing, those people that are dying who don't know the Lord? For me, I, I, let's rejoice. Like, let's be happy that God has saved people and not try to focus on ourselves so much. It's just amazing to see just how selfish that Pharisee was. But we can also be that Pharisee at times, and so we have to be careful. You know, when we see people that we didn't expect to become Christians, we should be celebrating. We shouldn't be like, Oh, I never expected you to become Christian, right? <laughs> I've heard that before, okay? <laughs> it's true. So we have to be careful in how we do that. C.S. Lewis puts it like this. The salvation of a single soul is more important than the production or preservation of all epics and tragedies in the world. C.S. Lewis is saying that the soul is more important than the production or preservation of all the epics, an epic as uh, a story or some type of, uh, of a narrative that he, he, often people would share. Um, one of them, a, a good story would be uh, the Chronicles of Narnia. And he's saying, one person being saved is more important than all of the books I've written, all of the books my best friend has written, J.R.R. Tolkien, Right? He said it's more important than the Lord of the Rings. It's more important than the Chronicles of Narnia. A single soul is the most important thing in the world, seeing it saved, because that means they have eternal life with Jesus. 
Warren Wearsby actually says this. And Warren Wearsby, he's a professor and he teaches on uh, preaching a lot. And he says this, God can use you, God can use you to help win the lost. Like I said before, we're all local missionaries. We're all sent here on a mission to go out, whether that be in our neighborhoods, whether that be in our families, our friends, to go share the gospel, to share what God has done in our lives and how he's changed our hearts from sinful ways and and selfish ways and how God is helping us to become more like him. That's the most beautiful story, how he's taken this life that was so broken down and how he transformed it into a beautiful creation, a brand new life and a brand new hope. So like I said, the entire theme of Luke is this. Luke 19.10. For the Son of Man came to seek and save the lost. This is the purpose of Jesus, of him coming down to the earth. It was to find those who were lost, who were broken, who were hurting, and to save them. And the same thing is happening today. God's looking for people who have tried to find their own way and have come to the end of their rope. He is looking for people who are ready to hear the word, who are ready to become changed and made brand new. So if you're a Christian, my my application for you guys is find people that are hurt, that are broken, that are confused and not sure about what to do in life and they don't know where the Lord or where where life is taking them. Remember to share what God has done in your life. Invite them to church. Invite them to hear the word of God. Because one invitation can change the entire trajectory of someone's life. It can it can change it completely. It can change it. I've seen people who have become alcoholics and drug addicts, and the Lord just worked in their lives amazingly, and they've done so many great things for the Lord, um, preaching, leading worship, so many different things, and so, or even just teaching a Bible study. It's so cool to see the way God works in people's lives. And so, we could be praying um, for lives to be changed. And if you're not a Christian, I challenge you, see who Christ is. He's the only one who's completely good, completely just, and completely loving. He has the power to save and to change lives. Only through him can people who are often distracted, like me, who often get bored or are constantly searching for something new, find contentment and satisfaction in something that is eternal, and that is God. He never changes and he never will. So my challenge to you is to give your life to God and see how your life and your purpose can be transformed. How you can experience peace even in times where you don't know where life is going, you don't know what's happening in life, and you're going through the hardest, deepest, and darkest circumstances. How you can still find joy. So if if you're interested in accepting Jesus, um, feel free to Uh, talk to me after service, and I would love to pray for you. I'd love to talk to you and just show 
and share what God is doing here at Bridges and in so many different people's lives around the world. And so, let me pray with you guys. Dear Lord, thank you for adopting us as your own children. You gave us an inheritance that never ends, and that inheritance is eternal life. You've clothed us with righteousness, majesty. You've accepted us with open arms, God, even when we've walked away. Help us to stay on, our, on your path, God, and help us to live for you. May our lives represent you well and bring honor and glory to your name. It's in your marvelous name, Father God. Amen.